This is Remote Ruby. Have you any remote idea to the meaning of the word? What's up? What's up? Hello. How are you guys? Doing Living good, doing good. I heard you are quarantining now. Yeah, got the COVIDs. Pro tip, don't get COVID. It's a good one. Yeah, it's annoying. I really, I mean, you both know I consider myself pretty lucky because I only have mild symptoms and I haven't been able to taste today except Starburst. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. That and a pickle. <laughs> so I just made a Starburst and pickle smoothie and I tested positive on Tuesday of this week. My test was Monday. I was exposed last Thursday. My friend didn't find out he had it until Friday. It was too late. Yeah. So I, I had a cough on Sunday and I've been a little fatigued. But other than that, I'm just bored because my wife and my boys tested negative. Shane decided to sleep upstairs in the spare bedroom. So I get the office and our bed, which is nice. But other than that, like I can't hug my boys. I can't really even be in the same room with them without us all wearing masks, which getting a two-year-old to wear a mask is <laughs> like getting a two-year-old to do anything. I and bet. Yeah. So Podia does this thing. We couldn't do a team retreat. They give us like a stipend to go buy dinner for our families. And that's today. And I woke up and I couldn't taste anything. And I was like, I've been really mad today. So, so you're going to spend the entire thing on pickles and Starburst? Starburst. I told Shannon I'm going to go get $100 worth of French fries from McDonald's on Podia's <laughs> tab. That should be a lot of French fries, maybe for the whole week. Yeah. Too many, <laughs> Too many French fries. My body will retain so much water uh, with all that sauce. But I don't mean to sit here and complain. Like, I'm really lucky. You know, I didn't have to go to the hospital. I can breathe. It's an annoyance and I'm annoyed that I could avoid it. Yeah. Well, sure miss, you know, conferences and stuff. So can't wait for this to be over. And then we'll get back to hanging out and having expensive dinners after conference days. <laughs> we were actually, we were talking earlier this week, but like today we were supposed to be in St. Louis hanging out. That was our plan was to come hang out with you. And yeah, well, guess you dodged a bullet on that one. So. Yeah, I guess. I guess so. But yeah, I don't know. Hopefully it sounds like vaccines and stuff are coming along. So maybe we'll get to do that here in the near future all safely again. But yeah, for sure. So people out there, folks, we use Honey Badger because we love Honey Badger. Honey Badger loves us, supports the podcast. Please support Honey Badger by going to Honey Badger, signing up, telling them that you heard about them on Remote Ruby and you will get some deals. Yeah, I use Honey Badger on Hope Grid, Field Help, and it's just reliable. It's easy to use. I like it. I was just talking to a guy this morning about he's got an app that's built on Jumpstart Pro that is going to go from 200 customers to like, he's going to add another 1,500 here in the next week or two. And we were having a call because he was like, I, you know, this is like a huge amount to scale up. And we're discussing, you know, how do you go from the app that one person's developing to something that's like more of a production environment that has uptime monitoring and stuff? Because he was like, I accidentally took the site down the other day for an hour or two and none of the businesses 
noticed or complained. But I'm <laughs> sure that some of the customers on the site weren't able to check out or whatever. And I was like, yeah, you need to go set up, you know, some stuff to monitor that and, you know, have your health checks. And, you know, if you've got background jobs doing work, have them report to Honey Badger so you can know for sure that they're checking in because that is one of the things that you can get by with for quite a while, just flying by the seat of your pants. But at a certain point, you need to know that it's working. And yeah, it saves you a lot of stress just being able to like relax. So thank you, Honey Badger, for sponsoring Remote Ruby and keeping it going. And if you haven't checked out Honey Badger, uh, there is a link in our show notes. And tell them that Andrew, Chris, and Jason sent you. And tell them we love them. <laughs> well, what's new in Ruby and, and Rails land for you guys? RubyConf next week. Was that next yeah, week? But it's virtual, right? So I, they, um, I'm still going to like it. They have, they're doing a bunch of stuff to make like the virtual experience cool. And cool. I'm not working next week. So boom. Yeah, I'm excited. So it's going to be better than RailsConf ended up. They were kind of, you know, in a bit of a pickle, you might say, because of COVID. But yeah, that was like, I wish it was live or they like, you know, put up a stream and just play it every video one by one for RailsConf or something. Because, you know, I, I said I was going to go watch some of those videos later. And of course, life happens and I never do. But if it was like streaming live, I would definitely tune in more and just play it in the background. So I'm curious what they've changed for uh, RubyConf because it's the same group of organizers, isn't it? Ruby, Yeah. But I think like the RailsConf thing was like, it came down to the wire, you know? Is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? For RubyConf, they've had a lot more time to prepare. So, I mean, they have hallway tracks, which are... Zoom has this like breakout feature now where you can it'll put you into a sub channel with, you know, other people and I think it'll be good. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, it should be fun. I wonder how many people will turn out and all that. Seems like it'll be a really good improvement over the quick, you know, shift they had to do for RailsConf. Yeah. I mean, there's some really good talks queued up, so and I guess shout out to, you know, giving away a ticket for free. But by the time this airs, all of that yeah. is long yeah. gone. Yeah. I mean, that turned out a lot better than, I mean, I was just like, hey, I want to help someone go. And then someone else was like, hey, I'll give someone some tickets. And I think at this point, we'll have given away seven tickets. Dang. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Heck yeah. That's great. Yeah, you'll have to let us know how it goes and everything. I don't know that I'm going to do RubyConf just because I'm too busy right now. But yeah, I'm really excited to, to hear how it goes. I think the virtual conference stuff can be really good. And I know that that's where Remote Ruby originally tried to start out just as a little meetup thing. But it'll be interesting to see how a conference size thing gets organized virtually versus just a, a little meetup or something that you could do on a hangout. Yeah. I'm excited to see how they do it as well. I might go to that. I have ample amounts of free time right now. 
I wasn't considering it because I didn't watch any of the Rails Comp videos. But if it's more like trying to be a virtual conference than just videos, that sounds interesting. Yeah, they're really trying to make it like into an experience. It looks like so. That's cool. I, mean, I I admire that. Even if I don't go, I think that's really cool. I like it too. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, I'm gonna, I don't want to go now because it's virtual, which like poo-poo for you, honestly. But second off, for smaller organizations like Ruby Together, losing out on the amount of income from these conferences is like detrimental. And we, as Rubyists, if we want to keep Ruby conferences coming and RailsConf and like all the stuff that Ruby Together does support Ruby Gems and Bundler and work on these projects, then you know, we need to support them. So like, if anything, it came out of a place of like, I want to support RubyConf and Ruby together. I mean, I also want to go. And then kind of like the point of, hey, I'll give someone else a free ticket was like, I viewed that more as like a donation to RubyConf. And then a lot more people were like, hey, we want to do it too. So I don't know. I think it speaks to the community. Yeah, it's awesome. I spent some time last night. I feel like I'm always like coming behind your footsteps, Andrew. Like every time I want to do something, it's how Andrew's written an article about this. I spun up a Bridgetown site with Tailwind yesterday and it was a lot of fun. That's kind of funny you say that because Eric finally came around to my magic of view components and he was on a call and he's like, dude, this is awesome. I didn't really realize like I'm having so much fun now. But so yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a prophet, I guess. I might say that. <laughs> but yeah, dude, I've been playing with Bridgetown a lot this week as well and having a blast. And I made like a short video on how to add Tailwind. And I've got my setup, which I'm almost done with, but I kind of went full hog into Snowpack again. And that's just been so much better. Subsecond reloads and hot reloading and I don't really want to write much JavaScript. So just really making it super fast, super nice experience. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Did you gut the Webpack setup in Bridgetown and replace it with a Snowpack setup? Yeah. And it's way less code. Damn. Because I remember that the last episode when we were ending, it was like you were unraveling because Webpack got brought up. And then I was like, oh, Andrew's just having a day. And then yesterday I was trying to set up Tailwind with Webpack because like with Webpacker, I get post-CSS out of the box, but I didn't get that yesterday. And so I was like, your instructions were so detailed, but they've already changed six months later because of reasons. And so I like went down this rabbit hole and I was like, you know what? Maybe I should just write this in pure CSS. So all all that to say, I owe you an apology because (laughs) you're wiser than me. Like I said, I made a YouTube video literally the other night because someone else was like, hey, this article is out of date now. And I was like, oh, I was like, I could just rewrite it. I was like, I really don't want to right now. So I just made a video instead. And I think like the main points for anyone listening is that, and maybe this is like a conversation that maybe should be brought up with Jared is, hey, like it would probably be best to include a basic post-CSS setup. And it's really not hard, but you have to know what to do. And the just opening up the Webpack config itself is like, holy crap, no, I don't want to do this. So that's like my plus to Snowpack because it's so much easier. And I think one misconception, or maybe not misconception, but it's scary to open up. That Webpack config is a very like basic setup. And it's like, hey, 
Bridgetown doesn't need this to work, but this is our way of jumpstarting your journey. And maybe adding post CSS in there is probably like the way to go if that seems to be what most people are wanting. But it's all you have to do is add the post CSS loader to the other loaders for CSS. And then that's kind of like the main thing. And now Tailwind, I don't know if you guys know about this, but Tailwind has a command now where you can do Tailwind init. And then if you add a flag that's dash P, it'll create a post CSS config for you. Which is pretty nice, but it's basic, but you know, it kind of jumpstarts you again. So, like I said, if you want, I can help you with Snowpack. I think it's definitely like the way to go. I mean, and Connor Rogers and I have been fiddling with it. We're like, what's the best way to do this? Because like Snowpack is not something that you can just put in and not understand at all. But there are ways to add it in and just be like, hey, if you're not trying to write a ton of JavaScript, you're just basically like you want the quickness of Snowpack, but you just want like the basic, you know, I want Tailwind or Bootstrap or what have you. Like it's not hard to do, but I don't know. It's interesting. Snowpack all life, all day. I think is it Connor that has the Tailwind plugin for Yes. Uh, yeah, see, I didn't know about that until after last night I tweeted and I was like, oh man, that is one thing that's like really cool about Bridgetown is the plugins. I use your inline SVG. Plug in. I don't know. It's just nice to have a place where I could go add what I needed to the project and right. just keep going. I like that it's kind of opinionated because it allows for some decisions just to be made for you and you just have to figure out where they are. Jekyll is really good, but Jekyll is pretty like here's the minimum amount of stuff you need to get going, figure it out. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. yeah. The docs are good. There's some like jumping off points that aren't really in the sidebar view or whatever of all of the list. And you kind of have to start digging in there. But Jared's done a really good job of documenting and there's a lot of great stuff in there. It's just like, how do I even know that this is a thing, for example? There's a thing called prototype pages. So if you have like a list of categories or all your pages, like there's a way to just create a prototype page so that every category will use it and you don't have to do anything funky and there's just so much that you can do it's like exposing that and like how do i do that instead of hey i'm just gonna keep writing the way i write jekyll sites but use bridgetown there's so much cool stuff and ways you can do it you just have to kind of read through the documentation and see what's all available yeah it was super easy to deploy to netlify because like my setup before i've mentioned this probably if we've had 104 episodes, I've mentioned this 94 times. My Jekyll setup has been a template that somebody wrote that has like post CSS and Tailwind because those are both the things I want, but it doesn't have Webpack. I don't even understand it. I'm not going to try to. I found it really easy to deploy Bridgetown on Netlify and just roll. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to expand on it. Yeah. The one thing with setting up Bridgetown. And I think I went over this in the video, but the way Tailwind's auto purge works is very funky monkey when you try to mix it in with Webpack. So that's why, again, Snowpack is a lot kind of easier because you know how Tailwind has like the ability to run Tailwind or like compile Tailwind directly from their CLI. Like instead of piping everything through Webpack and then rebuilding everything with Snowpack, you can just have 
Like anytime I change like a CSS file, just use Tailwind itself to like compile that because I don't need anything else. If you insist on using SAS, which honestly you really don't need to, but if you insist on using SAS, then that becomes a more of a pain. Just because, but that's like universal. Once you try to combine SAS with these more modern tools, like you're going to pay a price, and I don't know if the gain is necessarily worth it. Yeah, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I still find myself when I start a project going between should I use Tailwind or should I use Bootstrap. Because I love using Tailwind so much. But one of the things I love about using Bootstrap is it's kind of like a design guideline because there's all the components made and stuff. And like Tailwind UI is that, but you still have to craft those components a little bit. And I was talking to my coworker Kyle yesterday about their headless UI stuff is awesome. They have a few of those components for React and Vue. But the problem is that's not like a real common thing right now in Rails. If it is, people don't talk about it. They don't necessarily just drop React and Vue in their projects. And they have one for Alpine they're working on. But even then, like you're adding Alpine into using Stimulus to... I don't know. Yeah, I use a mixture of the Stimulus controllers that I've written and the old Alpine JS Tailwind UI stuff Mm. on GoRails. With the intention of always like pulling it out and just writing it all in stimulus, but in order to get animations and stuff, just not haven't haven't had the need for that. Yeah, it's not. I don't know. That, that's an example of the Jumpstart Pro config area is Bootstrap, just because we use tabs. Writing all of that with Tailwind, we don't really want to force you to like compile. Tailwind just for this one little area that's only in development. So using Bootstrap from the CDN was like the easier way forward at the beginning. Ideally, maybe it'll be Alpine and uh, Tailwind and kind of more match the actual app or something later on. But yeah, it's not an easy decision yet until Tailwind has complete, you know, easy to drop in JavaScript that doesn't require a whole framework. Yeah. Okay. The common thing I find myself is when I'm designing like either in a Rails app or a Bridgetown site or wherever, I don't need JavaScript typically until I'm like this stupid nav bar, which is like the bane of my existence. That's always the first place I'm like, all right, I need JavaScript if I want to do this like this. And I'm like, ugh. So honestly, I used to write a bunch of stimulus for stuff like that. But honestly, for my recent like endeavors with Bridgetown, I'm like, Dude, no, I'm not doing that. I'm just literally going to use Alpine through the CDN, just like they recommend. It's fine. It's fast. It's super easy. And it's not a pain. And I don't want to write and mess with JavaScript. I just want it to work. And I just want to be productive with Tailwind UI. And that's where Alpine... I'm, I'm fine with it. Yeah. See, I'm interested to use the React one because I know that like... That is a very controversial topic, but I've really enjoyed working in React at Podia recently because like we were just making really tiny components that like we render and we still use Rails for everything. It's just like one little component needs to be React. And so I'm wondering, would headless UI React work for me in a Rails context? But backing up even further than that, like the times I enjoy working with like Tailwind is when I have a file from a designer. And the project I was working on for Bridgetown, I had a PSD file. It was 
so awesome because I was going in and like looking at what's the like letter spacing they have here in the PSD. And I was like recalculating that into rims. And then I was like, okay, Tailwind has that or they don't. I just extended it to add an extra utility. And I was so productive. And literally like when I was done, I had a website that for one of the first times in my life, and I've been making HTML at PSDs for a long time. Like one of the first times in my life, it looked like a design file. Yeah. I hit like a weird place where I'm like, okay, working with Tailwind and Tailwind UI is great and all, but if you don't have a design to begin with, it instantly loses a massive amount of value, in my opinion. And then I start waffling and yada, it's just a pain. But yeah, if you have a mock-up, oh my God, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Or if you have a direction you want to go, you can tweak stuff quickly with it. But yeah, it's not like you can slap together a rough layout without a design like you can in Bootstrap. That still wins for really quick and dirty designs or whatever. They never look good, but that's that was never the point. Somebody was talking about Bootstrap on Hacker News the other day uh, because like Alpha 3 of version 5 came out. They were talking about how Bootstrap isn't really meant to just use what they give you. It's designed to be customized. That's what we do at Podia is we have a product designer who works very closely with one of the product devs to customize Bootstrap. And like it is pretty cool in the very customized version we have. But once again, I'm not, it goes back to the same argument though. Like I'm not a designer, so I don't know what to customize. Yep. I hear you. What else have you guys been up to this week? Anything Ruby related? We dive into plenty of JavaScript complaints every week. <laughs> I'm just wrapping up my job this week. So that's a big one. Yeah, I'm kind of putting, trying to put some finishing touches on a gem that I don't actually think I'm going to be able to finish in time, which I have mixed feelings about. But yeah, other than that, no. I will give a shout out. If you're trying to build a API client gem for something, there's a gem called API Struct. And like hands down, my favorite. It's super easy to get up and running with. And it's super easy to like get everything you need, especially if you want to interface with multiple APIs. I highly recommend checking it out. I just pulled this up. I don't think I've seen it before. It looks nice. It looks like you have kind of the URL structure that you define in your endpoints config there. And then you can define your client pretty easily to almost build you know, little wrappers around. We want this ID and then we make a get request with that ID to this URL or whatever. It looks handy. It looks very similar to like a building a class out of an HTTP party and partying hard. Yeah. The readme is kind of like misleading to the like actual depth that you can go with this. Their examples are pretty simple, but there's gems that are out there on GitHub and they flex the power of this a lot more. But if you're just trying to get quickly up and running, API struggle is so nice. Yeah, looks good. I'll have to try that out sometime next time I build a API client. Because a lot of times what I'll do is just write like a, just a plain Ruby class and then grab probably HTTP RB, REST client, 
Faraday, one of those three, and then just, you know, write my own little get, post, put, delete helpers. It's not bad, but it's also like a little bit more tedious and I probably do it a little bit different every single client. And this will give you a little bit more consistency if you build a bunch of them, which is nice. The pattern aspect itself is like what I find probably the most helpful. It's like, hey, we've already got all the requests and stuff for you. And this is the pattern that you have a client. Like they, they have these concepts of the two concepts in API struct are an API struct client and an API struct entity. And a client kind of represents an endpoint wrapper, essentially. So like the methods in there, you might have, you know, show and index and user posts or whatever you have in there. And it's literally just a super simple way to get ID or get or just get the root API URL or this and that. And an entity is like a response serializer. So if you have a user, then you know you can specify, okay, the user has these attributes and it could have entities. It could have one entity or multiple entities and those could be like your posts. So if you hit an API and the API returns back like a, your user, but it also has maybe your user posts or your, your likes or your whatever you want to, whatever the API is. What's really nice is that you can say, for your API struct entity, you'll just do has entity posts as post. And that's another entity that you've defined. So all of the attributes on the post are set up for you as well, which, and you can keep nesting, like maybe the post has many authors or something like that. And you can keep going down. It's super nice and easy to interact with the object that gets returned. Yeah, I think that's the big thing that gets a little bit annoying with doing it from scratch because you end up just getting a hash back and then you've got to work with all the keys and dig through strings. And it's just not as easy to work with as like an API wrapper. For example, Stripe's API wrapper is really nice and they give you these objects back that are really just wrappers around the JSON, but they are smart enough to know some associations and things. And that is really handy to be able to write code that's not digging through these strings and actually just calling methods on the return object. It feels way more Ruby-ish that way, which is what Mm -hmm. you want. Right. And I think they use under the hood a hashy. I think the gem's called hashy. Yeah. And it, yeah, it, it gets everything all ready for you. Instead of like digging into a hash, you're calling methods and you can call methods, chain those methods. And if you want to check, like they have all the error stuff built in for you. And so like you can try to get a a new tweet, for example, and then you can say dot success question mark. And that'll tell you whether the, it was a success or not. And if it was a failure, it has all the error stuff super in a great way. You can do error.code and error.message and it's so nice. Yeah, it makes it a lot more readable that way Mm -hmm. rather than saying if status equals string of success or whatever, you know, and digging through all that. It just is, I don't know, it goes off the rails pretty quickly. And and you can tell when an API client is really clean and easy to work with because it feels way more Ruby-ish than like, here's a Ruby hash with a bunch of keys and, you know, values and good luck. Yeah, that's great. I want to see more stuff like that because there's a lot of clients that have very different ways of implementing their response handling and some are just horrible and some are really awesome like stripes. And yeah, the hashy stuff is pretty cool. I remember learning about that in my early days of Ruby and being like, 
this is amazing. And there's the, you'll see Rails use the hash within different access, but that really only allows you to use a symbol or a string to access a hash, but not call a method and have method missing take care of delegating to that same attribute property or whatever. So yeah, that's pretty cool. Yep. So there's my Ruby thing. It's just so simple. If you want to get super complicated, the readme and the docs aren't super great at telling you how to do that, but it's out there and it's possible. For example, I was having a lot of fun with this. And for my website, I was like, all right, I want to start automating some stuff. So like, okay, I want to grab maybe all my liked posts from dev.2. And then I want to get all my posts from dev.2 as well. And Bridgetown makes it super easy to like build pages like that. And you can call APIs and stuff like that. And I, at one point, started working on a dev.2 API client. And I don't really remember why. And I definitely didn't finish it. But I looked back and I was like, all right, what would it be like to do this with just API struct? And oh my God, it's so much easier and quicker and like fast. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen that gem before. So. We'll have it linked in the show notes so people can check it out. I've been working on, well, I spent all day unintentionally refactoring the test suite for the Axis Tenant gem. And the gem's kind of like the, the author, I don't know, hasn't responded to anything for a couple of years now, maybe something like that. But it's definitely one of the most popular like multi-tenant gems out there. And so we're using it in... Jumpstart Pro, and I figured I'll, you know, throw my hand in the air and say, hey, I'll help maintain this. So I've been going through this week and merging in PRs and fixing bugs and stuff that have been around for a long time. And, you know, it's nice to have all that together. But then inheriting an old app that's well over nine years old, I see one of these files that's nine years ago it was created. There's a lot of baggage in a library like that. And just like something as simple as the, the spec folder, there's these top-level files that are, I guess, kind of support stuff that just needs to be moved into a support folder and required instead, like a database.yaml, spec slash database.yaml, which seems a little strange. And then an active record models that has your schema defined in there and all of the models directly defined in there. And I was like, I'm going to go take some time and clean this up and put a Rails dummy app in there, require that, put the models where they would actually belong in a real Rails app. So when you're writing your tests for this and adding a feature or whatever, you feel like you're actually working with a real Rails app now. And boy, that makes things a lot easier to comprehend and organize and everything. So it, it was fun to go through that. Even little things like, you know, database cleaners in there, but it's not really needed as long as we're using some of the built-in Rails stuff. So I've, I switched a lot of the tests over to use like some simple fixtures because we don't really have... Access Tenant just simply manages more or less one variable for you through your requests and whatever. So we don't have very many complicated relationships to set up. And the tests were like creating all these records, every single test and then deleting them and... It was just overkill. So I went and made a couple fixture files with maybe 12 fixtures in them total and cleaned all that up, got rid of database cleaner and went through and like little things of 
almost every test is defining an account and it's creating a new account or they're just slightly different, but always kind of the same. And then going through and saying, okay, we'll go and set this as a let at the beginning of our file so that all the tests can just remove that line from the beginning. And voila, we've saved like a hundred lines of tests. And you know, that little baggage that probably was originally some tests were written and then people were contributing and copy and pasting tests to, you know, test their feature. Then all of a sudden you end up with, you know, 500 lines of tests that are all kind of messy and need to be cleaned up. So it was nice to go through all that. Took a lot longer than I anticipated, but now I think the test suite is like nice and clean, still needs some organization. I feel like the some of the features are all kind of stuffed in one big file and it could get organized uh, a bit better. But yeah, it was nice to take that over. If we ever hear from Erwin M., who's the original maintainer and author of of the gem, maybe we'll be able to get me added to the Git repo and Ruby gems and all that. I wish there was a better way of what happens in the community when someone just disappears. Any reason could happen. That's definitely going to be way more common going forwards. And some projects like Devise get safely handed off to somebody else. But the ones who are like just slightly less popular don't necessarily get a safe handoff to a new maintainer. And yeah, be curious to see what happens with that. I feel like the NPM packages with the at Tailwind slash Tailwind CSS is a nice way of doing it. And I kind of wish RubyGems supported that where it could be like exit slash access tenant and people could just switch to that. It'd be kind of nice to be able to publish in a, I don't know if it's necessarily a namespace or whatever, but it's something like that. Well, in NPM, that's an org. So when you do at Tailwind CSS, that's an organization on NPM that you can then add packages to. I had the same thought the other day. It would be nice to be able to do something like that. Otherwise, you end up with some weird name of like exit three underscore access tenant or whatever. You just can't use the same kind of... You want to use the, the slash organization that folders and everything are you used to with namespacing things. So That's how you end up with can, can, can. Yeah. So it'll be what? Axe as tenant? Is that what I should register? Super tenant. All right. Well, hot take. Whenever I run into things like this where I'm like, all right, I need to fork this. It's obvious that the... It's like, I need to make a fork and I need to do something for me. And I'm not even going to try to like make a PR for this because either it's unmaintained or like I'm trying to do something specific that I know they're not going to want and they're not going to want to maintain or maybe I don't even want them enough to maintain it. And honestly, I have started just remaking a new name for it. And I think that's kind of fine. Yeah, I think that's not a bad solution for it. It's not ever going to replace the original library and you're probably going to end up going a little bit different in your direction anyways. Exactly. Um, I'm trying to keep this one specifically as like same in line with the the goals of Axis Tenant. So it's one where like, yeah, I'd like to, it'd be great to be able to become a maintainer of that and just keep it going because I know that all these people are using it and it would be great to just give them sort of free updates and, and whatever. And they can do that now if they switch the name of their you know, get 
or the add the git line to their gem file. But yeah, it is probably time to maybe just rename it or something because it's been a couple months, maybe maybe not quite a couple months of waiting on a response and quite a few people replying to it. So they're at least now saying, you know, go use this fork, which helps because a lot of people, I've been surprised, but I've already merged in what, six PRs from people that had open PRs from the access tenant, that repo. And it's easy for them if they want to make their same PR, they just open a PR because they're both forks from the same repo. So it makes it super easy because I think we've taken care of most of the reasonable ones that were on there, some that were like, you know, a PR that's been broken and open for a couple of years and the tests don't pass or they're diverged and it's not something you can just merge without conflicts. So some of those, I'm like, not going to worry about them. But if someone wants to make a PR for those in the latest version, then great. But yeah, I don't know. I may hold out, but I also might just release it as a, as a new gem name. Have you tried emailing the maintainer? Yeah, his email was not public anywhere on GitHub. It wasn't I, in the gem spec? It might be. Let me check. It is. I will yeah. do that. Although I think, I swear, someone else has probably done that by now. I would assume. Well, I don't... I mean, you'd so be maybe surprised. Not. Yeah. Well, I will do that because I don't know why I didn't think of that. But it's. Mm-hmm. I went to his GitHub profile and no public email there, which makes sense. But, but yeah, duh. Should have looked in the gem spec. There you go. There's Andrew's uh, stalking tip for the day. Perfect. You you might need to keep most of those to yourself, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Until they get used against you. If you were to look through the Git log, their email should probably be in there, too. Yeah, because the email is how your commits are attached to your GitHub account, right? Yep. So if, it's, if the commits are open source... It's scrapable somewhere. Yep, it's in there. Makes sense. Yeah, what else have you guys been up to? Anything uh, else in the Ruby land? I generated PDFs the other day. I am so sorry. I think that's like the thing that when you're like, oh, I want to generate PDFs, everyone's oh. So I started with Wicked PDF, as you do. As one does. And ended up with a final result of prawn. So refresh me, does Wicked do HTML to PDF? Yep. Okay. Because for anybody that's not familiar, prawn's like, here, go to this specific pixel and then, you know, write text or whatever. Yeah. Draw a line and yeah. And it's, it's super like super low level. I mean, super low level. It's a, very big abstraction, but it's more low level than just turning HTML into a PDF. Yeah, it's zero visual design. It's like very raw because that's what I use for the receipts gem. And yeah, it's not great. It's like move down 32 pixels, start printing text, and then you can't do much responsive stuff. So if someone wanted a different size, you know, output or whatever, it's not magically going to be responsive for that. Or if you change a font size, then like it's still going down 32 pixels, even if it's going to ride over top of stuff or give awkward space. It's just hard-coded to that. But it's reliable 
in that if you say this is where I want it on the page, that's where it's going to be, which kind of feels like the old days of web development before we worried about responsive, right? It was, well, here's the pixels it is. So that's why all of your websites were like a certain max width and they're yep. always centered. Because yeah, you or, or always to the left, but no wider than 800 pixels. So, like when we started <laughs> getting like wider screens, we would expand it and just have tons of white space. Yeah, it's so funny that, you know, those things have changed. Cause I remember looking into, Visual Basic and stuff. And this is way back when, but it was the same thing where you drag a button and you could resize the window and the button's sitting in the same spot. And then it was interesting because GTK, which you can use to build interfaces, like mostly it's used on Linux, but you can do it on Windows and, and Mac or whatever. But that one was like, really strange because if you put a a button somewhere, it would like default expand to take up the entire space. So if you put a button in the window, it would be like the entire size of the window, which was actually really nice because everything was responsive by default. You didn't have to go through and set like those settings on you're this many pixels from the right side and the bottom or whatever. And I remember being like, the Visual Basic way is intuitive, but this is actually way more useful. But it is not intuitive at all to figure out. I want this button to be like close to the bottom right always, but not like the entire screen size. So, yeah, yeah. times have changed. Yeah, but it's... I had trouble getting Webpack or to render my assets into wicked pdf it was some kind of issue in development and you had to use some kind of monkey patch and after fiddling with it forever i was like you know what i don't care how this thing looks anymore so i found this i was actually it's for hope grid so i was generating a pdf form that like people print out and fill out like it's 1980 and i found this gym called Cron forms or something like that. And it generates like this. These look like forms that come from the IRS, but they're stupid consistent. When I tell it that this is the field, it looks like I want it to every time. So that's what I went with. Hey, and that works. it works. Yep. It so. looks like it was from the IRS. That's just the, a perfect visual. I think everyone's, oh, okay. I, I got what you're saying. Yeah, I'll I'll put it in the show notes. I, I ain't scared. Yeah, I want to see these because I've had to do that before too. And what you really don't want to do is draw lines and put an empty box and stuff. And you could like, eh, you can't really use a table to cheat and do that as easily. So if you've got a tool that does it for you, that's going to save you a lot of time because it's pretty tedious. Yeah, I just put a link to the gym in the show notes or in the chat. They have pictures like you can you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. I was going to say this. I I didn't realize how much you meant. This looks like it was from the IRS. (laughs) This looks like it literally came off the IRS form. Yeah, this gym may be used in the IRS. (laughs) Um, It really does. Yeah, they're just like single width line boxes around everything and the like capitalized labels that go up in the top left. 
but it works so well. Like That's awesome. This encapsulates the this is how it started, this is how it's going meme that goes around. Does this generate fillable fields with, you know, if you're using preview nope. or something on the Mac? Nope. Okay. It is. I mean, you it, don't really need that. Like all the PDF editors are like, here we can slap some text anywhere you want. It is kind of cool if you would be able to generate those like fillable fields. That'd be kind of sweet. But for my use case, it's if someone's filling this out, if they have a need to fill it out online, I can just build a form for it, right? This is like where they actually want to literally hand someone a paper copy. So yeah, um, right. Yep. I don't know if you can do that same thing. Maybe it's easier to do with the HTML, the PDF ones. If you can do like a input form field and have it just detect that and convert it to a fillable field. Or if it's more, we're just going to take a screenshot and that's your PDF. I don't know. I don't actually know how they work. So it's kind of interesting. Oddly, I'm really satisfied with it because the forms that I need to generate, the fields are dynamic. They are user-defined fields. And so there's this like edge case where we may be getting ready to render another section too long for the rest of the page. And so it's just going to get clipped on the PDF. So what I'm actually doing is I know I define how tall each section is. So I have to go through and look like how big is this section multiply each field by 25 pixels. Do I have that many pixels left on the rest of the page? If not, prawn, start a new page and render it. It was kind of fun. It almost felt like programming. So That's pretty cool. PDF stuff feels very, I don't know, very obscure. It's such a, it feels proprietary as hell. And something that it just, it doesn't seem accessible. So if you remember from your Windows days, you could always download Adobe Reader or whatever, but there were so many open source and other like PDF reader tools and there was just like some nonsense. Well, I will say I feel like every single app I've ever worked on inevitably is, yep, we're going to need some PDFs in here. And there's just grown. The easiest thing that I've ever experienced is in CodeFund where we just used a third-party software where we're like, this is the data we want. Here's the HTML and the CSS, and you just build it for us. And that was pretty nice. And I don't remember the name of the company, but that was the easiest thing. Once you travel down Wicked, then you're like, okay, well, something's weird because WK HTML to PDF, is something's off with that. And then you got to change the binaries and then blah, blah, blah. It just becomes like a nightmare. Yeah. yeah. Never had too great a luck with those either. I've actually written a ton of Ruby recently, but I'm out of time. So this is the until next week, second week, like the 15th week in a row. I'm like, I have stuff I want to talk about. And we just complain about JavaScript for half the episode, at least. I don't know that I was really complaining about JavaScript today. I was complaining about sucking at design. Well, it's close enough. Use JavaScript to make your design work, right? Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not anymore. I've sworn it off. No more, no more JavaScript. I'm done. No with more it. interactive applications. How about that? Yeah. Everything is static from now on. Yeah. Cool. It just works. TM. We'll just replace all your buttons and forms with divs and links with divs and 
Everything is static from now on, including no interactions. All right. Well, I guess we'll see you guys next week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See ya.